Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're here with a guest who could headline both the Wall Street Journal's finance pages and Education Week's reform section. He is a popular school reform blog and is responsible in part for the creation of Teach for America and the growth and governance of KIPP schools across the country. And he must do this all on his lunch break as he's a full-time New York fund manager and writer on investing. We welcome to the EdCast the prolific Whitney Tilson. Thank you. Whitney, your dedication to education is resolute. You grew up the child of Peace Corps volunteers living in Africa. How much of your passion for education is informed by your childhood? Uh, well, I suppose it's a little bit genetic. My parents have uh, uh, a sort of do-good or change the world gene and were among the first people to join the Peace Corps and uh, actually met uh, and married in the Peace Corps about five years before I was born in the early 60s. Uh, so my father has a doctorate in education and specializes in education in third world countries. Uh, both of them were actually teachers and union members uh, right about the time I was born in New Haven, Connecticut. So, uh, so I've got lots of education in my roots um, that first man manifested itself when I was graduating from Harvard in 1989. I knew Wendy Kopp's younger brother, uh, who introduced me to her and said, you know, you teach it hook up. My sister's got this interesting idea that you might be interested in, Wendy. And that idea, of course, was Teach for America. I thought it was a brilliant idea and a brilliant entrepreneur. And uh, uh, both those things turned out to be true, as we, as we now know. What was it about that proposal and meeting Ms. Kopp that really made you think TFA would work? Well, um, the... There was clearly uh, a real need. I was uh, I wasn't nearly as deep into the issue as I as I am today, but certainly saw the need. Uh, I could certainly sense the uh, among my peers at Harvard and other top colleges the desire to make a difference. Uh, and uh, and then I knew Wendy in terms of uh, you know a good idea is ten percent of it, and ninety percent is is the ability to execute by a great entrepreneur. And uh, I actually knew Wendy uh, through uh, something think she ran at Princeton that brought together top college students with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And it was a very impressive operation, and she'd been elected to lead it. And so I knew uh, she was a real organizer, manager, entrepreneur, and also had the ability to raise money from Fortune 500 CEOs, which is obviously the other key part of starting any nonprofit. So uh, it just made a lot of sense, and so I deferred my job offer at the Boston Consulting Group and headed down to New York. Um, I was one of the first people to join her, helping uh, get TFA off the ground. And I think the education landscape has been changed ever since. Now, edreform.blogspot.com, it's your school reform blog. Archive posts go back to October 2005. Tell us about the day you made your first post and how your audience and how your writing has changed over the years. Sure. Well, actually, it goes back significantly before 2005. That's only when I started posting stuff on a blog. It's really less a blog than an email list. Uh, and uh, um, and I started uh, when I uh, Wendy Cop introduced me to David Levin. I think it was 1999, and there were just two Kip schools. Uh, Mike Feinberg was running the original Kip down in Houston. Dave had set up the Kip in the South Bronx a few years earlier. So Kip was a network of two uh, schools. And Wendy took me over to to meet Dave and see that school. And I still remember it. A totally electrifying experience. Changed all my perceptions about you know, what, what schools, the impact schools could make on even the most disadvantaged kids. And uh, so I started uh, becoming uh, Kip's greatest champion and bringing up every wealthy friend I had to see the school and maybe donate money, And because, uh, you know, Dave was always trying to make ends meet financially. 
And, uh, and so it was a couple of years after that, I guess, you know, when I would read an article in the New York Times or something like that, I would clip it and I would send it along to Dave. So it was an email list that had one person on it initially. And then Dave said, hey, put my other friend here on it. And then, you know, I added Wendy Cop to it. And, and so over the years, it's just grown organically through word of mouth and, you know, probably has four or 5,000 people on it now. And I think it gets forwarded around a bit. And I guess it was in 2005 that I started posting what I was sending around in my emails onto a blog so there would sort of be a record and people could go back, you know, people who are new onto the list could go back and see the stuff I'd written previously. So it's sort of a hybrid blog email list now. I think what's really interesting about your blog is you also talk about sort of iconic PowerPoint presentation that you gave in 2009, similar to Al Gore's presentation on the environment for the inconvenient truth. Yours was later turned into a movie as well called A Right Denied, The Critical Need for Genuine School Reform. Whitney, what is the difference between school reform and genuine school reform? Well, I think there's a, a everyone, everyone, if you ask them, is a school reformer, even, uh, even the unions and the people who are most defending the status quo like to call themselves reformers, and they embrace timid little steps that don't do anything for kids or change the status quo, and they call that reform. So, so the word... Uh, so everyone, of course, uh, would, would quibble over how they define genuine. Even the, what, the people I would call pseudo-reformers, I'm sure, consider themselves embracing genuine reform. Uh, but basically, uh, you know, we have a system uh, in this country that is, um, it's, a lot of people like to say it's broken. I'm actually not sure it is. I think it actually functions the way it is designed to function, i.e. to serve the needs of adults. Um, and it's a system that works very, very well for the adults in the system. You know, over the past 40 years, there have been five enormous trends for the now roughly six million adults in the system, a little more than half of that teachers and the other three-odd million, uh, the non-teaching staff in our system. And those trends are more jobs, higher pay, shorter hours, better benefits, and more ironclad job security. And those are all wonderful things, uh, but sometimes those things conflict with uh, both budgetary realities as well as what's uh, good for kids. Uh, shorter hours are obviously not, uh, on the part of teachers, are obviously not good for kids. Um, you know, one of the key things KIPP does to be successful, for example, is, is it, it, it recognizes that kids from the most disadvantaged uh, backgrounds need a lot of extra time and attention. Um, so we extend the school day, we extend the school year, we run three weeks in the summer, we start at 7.30 in the morning, we go till 5.30 in the evening, we operate uh, on Saturdays, uh, at least half days, uh, because that's what is, is necessary to help those kids uh, achieve and go to college. Um, so, so you know, uh, Dave, one of my favorite Dave Levin quotes is is uh, is in the in our school system, time is the constant and achievement is the bare. That's that's the current situation. Um, it, it, we need to flip that on its head and make achievement the constant and time the variable. Another quote that came to mind as I was preparing for this interview, and I feel may apply to the ed reform landscape, is this: There's a lot of authority, yet no leadership. Who is or should there be a leader of the evolving school reform mission? Um, well, that's a good question um, because uh, our current system is so decentralized. So approximately 90% of the funding of uh, 600 plus billion dollars a year of K-12 educational funding, the second largest area of government expenditure, by the way, after health care, 
90% uh, of it's at the state and local level. So there's no, uh, there's no one person who should be in charge. It depends on, on what level you're talking about. I'm a, I'm a very strong proponent of mayoral control. Certainly at the city level, um, we've tried the school board experiments, and by and large, uh, we now know that that doesn't work at all. Uh, not, that's not to say every mayor is great and mayoral control is some sort of magic bullet, but it's sort of a necessary first step toward reforming any system is to put one elected official in charge and who the voters can hold accountable. Um, you know, the single most important person is the president, uh, who, while it's only 10% federal funding, uh, the president is, you know, our leader and can lead a party. And that's why uh, uh, it, it, an organization I helped found called Democrats for Education Reform, are, uh, which is meant to create a, basically a counterweight to the teachers' unions within the Democratic Party in a political sense. Um, we focused on trying to find a Democrat who might be elected president someday, who we could support at a, at a very early stage, uh, who could uh, be a real advocate and help tip the party toward embracing the necessary reforms we saw. And we got very, very lucky. We found Barack Obama before he gave that famous speech at the Democratic National Convention, before he was a household name, and we started supporting him. And uh, we got doubly lucky when the unions went all in with Hillary in the primaries. So Obama got elected uh, with, uh, with our support and where the, the teacher unions had completely alienated him and his campaign team. And he's been, uh, he has been the single most important leader in terms of moving the education reform uh, agenda, particularly and, and particularly moving the Democratic Party on this. So you wouldn't be a proponent of Diane Ravitch becoming the education czar? Uh, that would be my worst nightmare. <laughs> Whitney, in, edu in Education Weekly in 2007, there was an article by Alexander Russo entitled, Who the Hell is Whitney Tilson? He goes on to explain how popular your blog is, how influential you've been with TFA and with KIPP. It's 2011 now. You're in the New York Times for Education, a movie out a wildly popular blog, has Whitney Tilson become a household name in the ed reform debate? Um, it, within the relatively small circle of education reformers, uh, um, I, I suppose I've become reasonably well-known, um, but that's only uh, a few thousand people. It's not, it's not tens of thousands, certainly not hundreds of thousands of people. So. Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably better known for my day job in value investing. You know, I'm a CNBC contributor, and I do a lot of writing on value investing. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm certainly in my spare time, and it really is only my spare time because I've got a full-time job, um, is, is I'm sort of trying to get the word out there, and it's not at all trying to get my name out there. Um, you know, I'm a hedge fund manager. Uh, I've never been a classroom teacher. I've done a lot of teaching of investing. I've, I've never taught children in a, in a school. And so, you know, I, I'm not a very good spokesperson for this movement. Uh, I don't have the necessary background and so forth. But uh, so really what I try and do with my blog is to find the people who are down in the trenches doing incredible work that are impacting kids every single day. You know, Wendy Kopp, David Levin, Mike Feinberg, uh, Joel Klein, Jeff Canada, uh, you know, you name it, um, who, who are out there engaged in this fight day to day and doing great work. And all I try and do is draw attention to and celebrate the work they're doing, number one. And number two is rebut all of the nonsense and attacks uh, that, uh, that come their way. Because, boy, let me tell you, uh, with a system with that much
money at stake that's working so well for so many adults. Uh, there are people who will fight to the death, who will stop at absolutely nothing to maintain that status quo that's working so well for them, and the heck with the kids. Whitney, I have to ask, I mentioned Diane Ravitch earlier, and you're posting a lot about her on your blog, and obviously there's a lot of talk in the New York Times. She brings a lot of attention to school reform. Would the reform community be better off without her voice, or does her stirring of the pot generate interest? Um... You know, she is a very worthy adversary, and what's ironic is is she used to be one of us. Uh, if you go back and read the things she wrote, you know, 10 years ago and earlier, uh, she, she was really one of the leading scholars and reformers, and for some not-quite-known reason, uh, she claims it was just an intellectual, the body of evidence persuaded her that, you know, all these reform ideas weren't working, and she has now become the most prominent, high-profile, vocal, uh, energetic critics of all things reform. Um, she's written a best-selling book uh, uh, about this, uh, et cetera, and uh, she, does, she is, I think, the single greatest threat. Uh, she's a much greater threat than Randy Weingarten, for example, because everybody knows Randy is head of a union, and at the end of the day, her bread is buttered and her salary is paid by the union. So when she says certain things, everybody understands that she has an agenda and she's looking out for her union members, and that's, uh, that's as it should be. She, in fact, has a fiduciary responsibility to do that. Whereas someone like Diane Ravitch comes in and gives the appearance of being unbiased, has the credentials of a scholar, and in fact can speak as one who was once one of us. And so uh, people believe her much more. Now, I personally think she has just as much of an agenda and engages in very shoddy research. Uh, I would not even call her a scholar at this point. She has and it's a very clear agenda that is in that there is not one sliver of daylight between what the unions say and what Diane Ravitch says. So, so I view her as a union spokesperson, in fact, but she is not widely perceived as such. And therefore, uh, her her uh, writings and uh, the things she says and and so forth uh, carry a lot of weight and do enormous damage. So, I've sort of taken it upon myself to rebut the many uh, misleading uh, things she says, in some cases outright false things she says. Whitney, last two questions. Our listeners are teachers and parents, academics and advocates. What is a call to action that they can take to help genuinely reform schools? That's uh, a good question. Um, it, it really it depends, I suppose. Uh, you know, my message to uh, my peers in the hedge fund world in New York, people who have deep pockets, is is the best thing you can do is write checks, uh, because you know the two unions together uh, have something like a billion five in revenues each year, and that's all channeled into maintaining the status quo and particularly into the political battles. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, our K-12 school system is, of course, a governmental system, which means it's controlled by politicians, which means if you have to change it, you can't just be right on the merits. You need uh, political muscle behind it. The unions very clearly understand that. So we need to fight that political game. So, you know, for the person who doesn't have deep pockets and writing checks, you know, get involved. Um, go, go visit a high-performing charter school like a KIPP. We have, we have 99 schools in 20 states uh, in most major cities these days. Um, and there are a lot of other KIPP-like schools. So go see what is possible and, and make sure you understand that just because a kid comes from a single-parent household, 
where uh, you know where neither of the parents uh, uh, has has finished high school, much less college, who comes from poverty, and and you've got to see with your own eyes that demography is not destiny. That a very high quality school, it is possible to overcome uh, uh, being from a very disadvantaged background. So um, you know, I have friends of mine who volunteer a lot of hours a week at uh, sometimes a regular public school that's doing good things, sometimes at a KIPP school. Um, so it's it's wonderful to get involved on a day-to-day basis in a kid's life, um, and so so if that's all you've got time for and don't have the ability to write checks or, or get involved politically, then then go get involved with a with a school that's that's doing right uh, by kids, um, and and for for other people who've got who've got political clouds who like getting involved in political fights, showing up at political fundraisers and or writing checks. Uh, and or writing checks to organizations that are doing great things like KIPP or Teach for America or Democrats for Education Reform uh, is important as well. Mr. Tilson, last question, and thank you so much for finding spare time within your spare time. Let's say you stop your blog, you give up this whole investing career, and you become a teacher. What grade do you teach and what subject? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, I would probably teach high school uh, advanced placement courses. Um, I've, um, you know, I took six AP courses myself in high school. I think it's, uh, you know, I've never heard anybody, you know, talk about teaching to the test when you're talking about a, a rigorous AP exam. Um, in fact, I helped start a program that's still operating uh, in New York, 31 high schools, where we provide intensive AP prep to 3,000 inner city kids in New York City to help them pass the AP exam. And then we give them uh, we, what we call incentive scholarships, basically cash rewards of 300 400 and $500 for every score of 3, 4, or 5 on an AP exam. And the program has... has really done great things for kids and helps these kids, um, you know, really raise the bar academically and go to better colleges, et cetera. So, so I've, I've become a big fan of, of the advanced placement program and its ability to uh, really uh, uh, take dif- disadvantaged kids uh, to a much higher level. Because part of the problem at a lot of these schools, a lot of inner city high schools, you know, the curriculum has been dumbed down to such an extreme degree. And the advanced, uh, you know, having advanced placement courses really helps uh, raise that bar. Um, so so uh, I've enjoyed uh, getting involved with that program and sitting in on the classes and, you know, my own experience, um, you know, with uh, six different AP courses uh, has uh, led me to think, hey, maybe I could teach that and uh, do a good job. You could maybe be the mentor to the finance club, too. That's true as well. <laughs> The blog is edreform.blogspot.com. Our guest has been Whitney Tilson. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for appearing on the EdCast. My pleasure. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.